this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles from Medicom Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. We have three really interesting interviews for you today, all of which are very current, newsworthy medical breakthroughs that were all recently published in high-impact medical journals. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. In this episode, we feature a truly impressive study which took three individuals with complete spinal cord severance and with consequent complete sensory motor paralysis and allowed them to walk within a single day. This was published in the February issue of Nature Medicine, and we were able to interview Dr. Robin Desemager from that study team, who tells us about the epidural electrical stimulation with an arrangement of electrodes targeting the ensemble of dorsal roots involved in leg and trunk movements. And this was part of an ongoing clinical trial. Within a single day, activity-specific stimulation programs enabled these three individuals to stand, walk, cycle, swim, and control trunk movements. This story really opens a realistic path to support everyday mobility for individuals with spinal cord injury. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. Also in this episode, Physicians Weekly Senior Editor Marta Kelly interviews Dr. Charles Fuchs, who's the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Oncology and Hematology Drug Development at Genentech and Roche, and he's also a Professor of Gastrointestinal Oncology and Epidemiology at Yale University. He talks about his study that was recently published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology that looks at the value of predicting cancer recurrence and death in stage 3 colorectal cancer patients and how it's possible to actually ameliorate the clinical outcomes of these patients. Visit physiciansweekly.com forward slash podcast. But first, we speak with Professor Tony Shueri from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard University. I caught up with Professor Shueri in San Francisco a few days ago at the ASCO's Genitourinary Cancer Symposium, or as he refers to it, GU22. And he talks about the update that he presented there about the Keynote 564 study, which looks at adjuvant pembrolizumab in patients with renal cell carcinoma. The initial data was published a few months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, and this was really a landmark study that catapults us into a new era of renal cell carcinoma of testing the utility of adjuvant checkpoint inhibitors for patients with advanced disease or localized disease that's at a very high risk of recurring. As we get additional follow-up data from Keynote 564, we're starting to understand the implications of the therapy with regards to overall survival in these patients. Enjoy listening. Thanks so much for speaking with Physicians Weekly, Professor Shueri. Could you briefly talk about the update of Keynote 564 and what that means to practitioners? Yeah, so uh, we had the chance during GU22 to present a six-month update, so more events uh, for Keynote uh, 564. Keynote 564 was presented during the plenary session of ASCO21, and it was the first immunotherapy after almost three decades of crying to show that immunotherapy does have a place in patients at risk for recurrence with renal cell cancer. So the disease-free survival hazard ratio was 0. 0.68, 32% decrease in the risk of uh, death or recurrence. And that led 
couple of months later to the approval uh, by the FDA, and now the EMA in Brazil approved as is this time pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting. So we did an updated result of six more months. The disease-free survival and the overall survival hazard ratio remained strong, and if anything, they got tighter. We don't have a statistically significant overall survival despite the confidence interval, despite the hazard ratio of 0.52, because we only have 33% of events. So we need uh, more, and we're going to continue to follow that. Another nuggets here is that when you look at several subgroups that are patients with sarcomatoid differentiation, others, they favor pembrolizumab. And finally, when you have more follow-up, you look at safety. These are patients, some of them are cured. Like So if you're already with surgery, so you need to see about a bit more long-term toxicity. We did not have any new safety uh, signals with uh, pembrolizumab um, with this new update. Professor Shuari, how can we put this data into the bigger picture of how to treat our renal cell carcinoma patients that have just undergone surgery? I think this, this again, justifies pembrolizumab as a standard in patient at risk for recurrence. Thank you so much, Professor Shuari. Thank you so much. Dr. Charles Hughes, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Hematology and Oncology Product Development at Genentech in Roche. He and his colleagues recently had a paper titled Diet and Lifestyle-Based Prediction Models to Estimate Cancer Recurrence and Death in Patients with Stage 3 Colon Cancer, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Welcome, Dr. Hughes. Yeah, thank you for sharing this uh, paper with your listeners. My pleasure. My first question to you is, uh, what makes diet and lifestyle-based prediction models to estimate cancer recurrence and death in patients with stage 3 colon cancer an important topic to research? Well, it's an interesting phenomenon. As you may be aware, there's abundant evidence that diet and lifestyle will drive the risk of developing certain cancers, including notably colon cancer, such that diets that are high in red meat, diets of high glycemic load, people who are sedentary, things like that can drive the risk of developing colorectal cancer. But what's really interesting is the people who are most motivated with that growing body of literature about diet and cancer risk are not the healthy people who are at risk. It's actually the people who have cancer. In fact, 75% of newly diagnosed cancer patients believe that there is a diet, lifestyle, or supplement that will, in fact, improve their outcome from cancer. So what we've tried to do now over the years, beyond our other work, is to assess the effect of diet, not among healthy people, or people undiagnosed with cancer, I should say, but actually people who have been recently diagnosed with cancer, and follow them such that what is the impact of diet and lifestyle beyond the appropriate treatments they're receiving for cancer? Namely, can diet and lifestyle improve their outcome beyond the treatments we routinely recommend in medical practice? Can you uh, briefly explain what you and your colleagues set out to determine with this study and and how the study was conducted? Of course. Well, we studied a, a cohort of patients with stage three colon cancer who had recently undergone a surgical resection, who were now felt to be disease-free, 
who were getting standard adjuvant therapy across the U.S. and Canada. And as well, at the time that they received their adjuvant therapy after surgery, we gave them a detailed questionnaire on diet, lifestyle, supplements. We did that at the time they started adjuvant therapy. We also repeated the same questionnaire roughly a year later, and we followed them for about seven years to see was there any particular diet or lifestyle that would change the outcome, that is either increase the likelihood of being cured from colon cancer or alternatively where the likelihood of recurrence was increased by any dietary factor. And we found through those studies over the years that a series of things did affect outcome. For instance, we found that refined grains actually increased the likelihood of recurrence. We found that regular physical activity reduced the risk of recurrence. Vitamin D reduced the risk of recurrence. Obesity increased the recurrence, among other things. But each of these studies looked at an individual thing one at a time. And as you know, as a practitioner and for the patient, what they're looking for is a general set of recommendations. So what we did is we looked at all of these approaches in diet and lifestyle or aggregate and wanted to test to what extent would a healthy diet and lifestyle improve beyond what we know about the clinical stage and the clinical presentation of a cancer, to what extent diet and lifestyle can increase, and to what extent an unhealthy approach could decrease. In clinical oncology, we typically look at the clinical and pathologic factors and put people into good risk, average risk, and poor risk based purely on those clinical factors. We said patients who took on a healthy lifestyle increased their likelihood of cure by 6% if they had a good risk cancer, by 21% if they had an average risk cancer, and by 43% if they had a poor risk cancer. And so beyond the appropriate treatments of cancer, we find that diet and lifestyle matter, which is really important for patients. What findings from your study are important to stress to our physician readers, particularly oncologists? The data suggests that patients want to know. As I said, 75% of patients are interested. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us as practitioners to talk to patients about it. One is assess what is their current approach to diet and lifestyle. And if they're in fact consuming a unhealthy diet, or they're relatively sedentary, or they're you know having difficulties with weight control, this is a perfect opportunity. It's a learning moment to talk to people about the importance of this with respect to improving their chances of cure. And I'll tell you the other thing is it empowers patients, right, to really have some say in, I'm going to take control of my lifestyle. And, and for the most part, patients are really quite motivated. So I think the lesson to all of us as practitioners is talk to patients about this. What are the implications of this research? How would you like to see physicians, again, particularly oncologists and gastroenterologists, incorporate your findings in their practice? I would encourage practitioners to question patients about it, to ask them about it. Now, some patients are not receptive, and I won't deny the fact that changing diet or lifestyle or exercising. These things are difficult to do. You want to do it 
slowly and help them and potentially refer them to a nutritionist or potentially a trainer or things that might be available to them. But I, I think having the conversation and you know reminding people that this is valuable is important. The other interesting thing about this is potentially understanding biology, right? So if, if sugar-sweetened beverages increase the likelihood that a colon cancer will recur, well, that's important, right? We'll tell people to avoid excessive sugar-sweetened beverages. But the other question is why? And we know that colon cancer is driven intracellularly by energy balance pathways, by energy pathways that are influenced by sugar consumption, right? So potentially this could avail new biologic targets beyond potentially offering additional information to advise patients. What would you like to see future research focus on in this area? What needs still exist? Well, I think first we want to confirm these findings. Our series of studies suggests that lifestyle matters. The other is we really want to try to make this user-friendly. So we now that we have this ability to create a healthy or unhealthy score, could we create an online tool that either practitioners or patients could use where they could enter in their current diet and lifestyle and then actually find out if they were to take a healthier approach, what increment of cure would they then gain? So I think that would be helpful to make it easier for both practitioners and patients. And then beyond that, as I mentioned, I'd love for scientists to try to understand if this is all true, how does it work? What's driving the biology? And can we glean from those biologic insights, new therapies? Well, that completes our interview today. And I want to thank you very much. Wonderful. No, I really appreciate your, your bringing us to the attention of people. For this last interview, we spoke with Dr. Robin Desimaker from the Polytechnical University in Lausanne, Switzerland. So thank you so much for joining us today. Could you explain your study that was recently published in Nature Medicine? Yes, so thanks for having me. So we tried to make people walk again after severe spinal cord injury. So we implanted three participants with Asia A or Asia B spinal cord injuries, so sensory motor complete injuries, with a new technology, with a new spinal cord implant that was optimized for our purpose. So optimized to target the different dorsal roots in the lumbosacral spinal cord and are responsible for locomotion. So to come to this new technology, we first of all uh, looked at imaging of multiple healthy uh, subjects where we mapped the entire uh, lumbosacral and low thoracic spinal cord to see how long the spinal cord is, where the roots enter and so on, and what the variability is among subjects. And we found out that actually there is a very big variability in between subjects, which makes it very difficult to have one implant that fits all, but nevertheless we tried to get to an implant that would fit the majority of the subjects of the population while keeping a good selectivity for the different functions. So we had these uh, 27 spinal cord models based on high resolution magnetic resonance imaging, CT, functional MRI, etc. Uh, that allowed us to functionalize also the model and see where we would need to place electrodes to reach highest selectivity to recruit some of the dorsal roots and hence the different muscles involved in walking or other uh, motor functions. 
So all of this then led to the development of this new targeted spinal implant with 16 electrodes that was a bit larger and longer as well than the implants that we previously used, which were built for chronic pain purposes. And this then allowed us to target not only leg muscles, but also the lower trunk muscles in our study participants, so that we could also target trunk stability, help them with transfers, help them with reaching to the ground to pick something up from the ground. So we built this new final implant. We link it to Medtronic stimulator, to the Activa RC, which is normally used for the brain stimulation, but that was repurposed for our purpose to stimulate the spinal cord. And we link it to also a newly developed technological software platform that allows us to look at kinematics, at muscular activity while stimulating the participant and really going and optimizing the place, location, and the timing of all the stimulation patterns to really help with different activities. This either in a very straightforward way where stimulation is just looping through sequence and the participant is then like synchronizing with the sequence, or in a more complex way where participant is going to trigger the stimulation in closed loop, where it's really the intention of the patient with button clicks or with uh, tiny movements that the patient is making that is going to trigger the correct stimulation at the correct timing. So we implanted three participants, severely injured, and within one day of optimization, all our participants were able to stand and walk in the lab. So hence being able to train again and perform a lot of different activities. So we optimized uh, spatial temporal stimulation programs, not only for walking and standing, but also for swimming, for cycling, etc. And then they went on during uh, six months of training in the lab and they improved and they got better and better, needing less and less uh, body weight support uh, during their training, leading to an outcome where they are actually able to use the stimulation independently outside, just walking with a walker with full weight bearing. Fantastic outcome. And were these recent injuries that were treated or were they injuries that were historically, uh, or you know, that were older? All of those are chronic injuries. So at least two years after the injury, but we have had patients who had the injury 12 years ago. Oh, amazing. Do you anticipate that that would make a difference, the length of time since the injury? Yes, there is preclinical data that suggests that indeed, if we would apply this therapy even early on after the injury, that it would be more efficient because there is a limited window where there is natural recovery after an injury. If we can boost this recovery with the stimulation, then we can hope for better outcomes. Because in the chronic stage, there is this plateau and normally there's not so much natural recovery happening anymore. So, but if you combine this window of natural recovery with the stimulation, hopefully you can get uh, better outcomes. And does this technology actually offer any implications with regard to other types of spinal cord injuries, like for example, upper, upper body movement injuries? Yes, for sure. So we are looking into how we can use the same concepts for restoring other functions, like for example, upper limb uh, function, but also to regulate, for example, blood pressure after spinal cord injury. Because many, for example, patients with cervical injuries have severe orthostatic hypertension. So when they go into a upright position on a tilt table or so, or even during transfers or during sitting, their blood pressure drops and they faint uh, and they need to recline. So we are looking at how we can use stimulation to also help with this by implanting at a low thoracic level. Ah, very interesting. And what about other functions that may be lost as a result of spinal cord injuries, such as bladder function loss or sexual function? Well, we definitely hope that that will also be a field of application. We're starting to look into that, but we don't have any clear data at the moment to share with you. 
Well, one of the things that is also coming up is the fact that we are trying to really reestablish the link between the brain and the spinal cord below the lesion. So thus far, as I told you, we are, have been working with closed loop approaches where we have different sensors that are placed on the legs to detect little movements that then are triggering stimulation with performing an entire movement and to like do stepping movements or buttons to trigger reflections, etc. But now we are also looking at how we can use actually brain implants to decode what the participant is really wanting to do and then trigger the stimulation based on those brain signals. So what are the considerations that you would say that if you had to redo the study or improve it, what, what would be the next steps? Well, I, I think as a, as a first step, there wouldn't be so much to improve in the sense that we, we definitely have like super motivated participants who are sports people actually before the injury. Like they have an extreme motivation, which is good now in this study where you have a limited number of participants and you really like they also need to put a lot of effort into the study to be able to improve and to, to work with us because like it's a discovery tour for everyone, for us as for them. But then like if you go larger scale, then you also need to take into account that not all participants have all that motivation and have all that time to offer us for all the training and so on. So looking at how all this therapy works also in a more generic population, I'd say, and especially also getting to a more simplified technology, uh, which a startup we are working with, uh, Onward Medical, is working on, will be key to really bring this into a therapy where it's a few button clicks and the thing works and the patient can train whenever, wherever. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I think it's very exciting and, and offers a lot of hope for patients. So congratulations. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. If you would like to suggest a topic for discussion or contribute to Physicians Weekly, please email pwpodcast at physiciansweekly.com.